Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, we're back for another week of conversation, commiseration, uh, etc. I think it's going to be a really lovely conversation today. So uh, Kira, how are you? Good to be back with you. Doing very well, thank you. Good. I think it's a, I think we need to say, even though we post our podcasts a few weeks um, after we record that we are a week before the election. And so it's, you know, that's a mood of, of some type. Indeed. <laughs> Maybe not a mood entirely, but it's definitely a state of mind that we're all in. I, I spent the first few minutes of my day learning about which states uh, count ballots, mail-in ballots before election day versus the ones that only count them starting on election day. It was really this is not information that I really needed to have in my head. So I'm, I'm <laughs> looking forward to the, to, I don't know, just, you know, I guess someone called it the exhale. <laughs> I think I might've said that last week. I'm very, yeah. much like, I feel like we've been holding our breath for a very long time. Um, and I am really ready for some kind of exhale soon. It's hard to know how much it's going to feel like an exhale and how much it's just going to feel like we're not holding our breath anymore. Right, <laughs> but, right, right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna be interesting. Well, what else is going on in your world? What are you thinking about these days? Uh, well, you know, I recently finished, I've been reading some climate fiction. I think you might have actually recommended um, Kim Stanley Robinson to me, and I read 2140 recently. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I think you specifically recommended that. And, you know, I lived in New York for a long time, so it was a fascinating read for me um, in many ways. And um, just, and, and in fact, and relates to a little bit just to the general topic of communities and how they're going to deal with this stuff um, economically, socially, and, you know, physically, all of those ways. And I, I read a really interesting piece last night in Common Edge by Lisa Chamberlain, about that Rockefeller funded group 100 Resilient Cities, which disbanded sometime in 2019, but has sort oh, of reformed. Yeah. Cool. They've come back kind of as huh. two separate groups. And it was just talking about why they came back at, you know, during the pandemic and what they're, how they're functioning now. And they're working at a much more local level and they're really centering social justice and equity issues. And it was pretty, pretty interesting piece. So I would recommend that to people. Uh, Common Edge is the source. Pretty good piece. And there was an interesting quote in there by Jeb Brugman, who's heading up one of the groups um, where he's talking about, think of shocks as the risks, the risk of exposure and stresses as the vulnerability. And then together, those are what determine resilience, which I just thought sort of wrapping all those things up together was a really interesting way of thinking about that. I think resilience is something we talk, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot <laughs> at that sort of yeah. at the city level. 
and it's really complex what it involves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I'm, I'm in that kind of space um, right now myself, partially because uh, in, in my class at Berkeley, we're uh, talking a lot about climate adaptation. Uh, we're in these, this set of weeks where we talk a little bit more about uh, sea level rise and mm -hmm. disaster. I mean, we've all been thinking about it this year in 2020, but these are the specific weeks in which we try to talk about the role of the built environment and all of that and how it is that we can all, you know, rise to the challenge. Um, and, and it's hard. It's been really, it's a really interesting uh, conversation with students about are there places in the world that humans shouldn't live and what is that going to look like to retreat from those places and right or you know or is it a matter of not retreating but just learning how to live in a place uh, in a very different way my head has been in that space and then like a counter to your point about a great article I, I also well actually this is a great article but it was a frustrating topic I posted about it on I guess it was Twitter not on LinkedIn but on Twitter this piece about Bjarke Engels' new project of making a master plan for the planet, yeah, uh, which he's calling Master Planet. And I just, the, the yep. piece was great because it actually, um, they interviewed a couple of really brilliant people who critiqued the fact that nobody really needs Bjarke Engels to tell us what to do. You know, they, they it just really like struck, like just totally pushed all of my buttons of, of frustration, you know, because it's just someone made the point like, oh, well, he's just trying to provoke us all to think bigger. And I was like, we don't, I mean, we don't need help thinking bigger. We just don't like, that's not actually the issue is we don't, we're not lacking. We don't right. need a, a bunch. We don't need a guy, whatever he is, like a 43 year old white architect uh, from Europe to tell us all what the world should look like. That's not the problem <laughs> we need to do is like be able to get together as communities and work on these things together and create visions of the future that are more uh, collective and that are fundamentally projects of collaboration rather than projects of like one man's right. architectural brilliance. Uh, <laughs> it was, I, I got a little worked up, uh, but you know, yeah, fair enough. Uh, that sounds like with good reason. I didn't see the piece and I will, I will certainly look for it. Um, yeah, it's and Lindsay, can company. I just say, I really want to audit your class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, we talk about this cool stuff that you're, I mean, I should at least get your syllabus. <laughs> I know. I've been telling people I, I'll put the, uh, the reading list up uh, on the internet somewhere so people can follow along. Uh, it's been a delight. It can be really difficult and discouraging at times. Uh, that's one of the pieces of feedback I've gotten from students. But yeah. I think we're, I, I think it's important to understand what we're up against um, before you start getting into a positive mood about things, you know? <laughs> that's not always something that we do well in the building industry. So I think, I think we've gotten through some of the roughest patches well, in that. Yeah, it, to, to be fair, just to be a human in these times and to be paying attention, not entirely uplifting on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <You> know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's where we are. So I'd rather just be someone that can help guide people to a sense of what they can do um, rather than, you know, um, yeah. somehow sugarcoating the whole thing or ignoring, you know, the, the critiques, I think, of 
a failed attempt of, of tackling these problems, you know? Right. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what we do. Um, but uh, actually, speaking of grappling with these times and uh, the ability to face them with, with courage and grace, I'm excited to introduce our, our guest for today, Heather Rosenberg. Uh, hey, Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, we're we're super happy to have you here. Um, it's it's funny because we, you know, our our little chat today is obviously a lot about issues um, of resilience and things. It but it has been a, for a lot of twenty twenty. So you as a person have come up a lot in my mind as the one we wanted to have on the show because you've been working on this and thinking about this longer than just in twenty twenty. When I think a lot of people have have had their eyes opened um, to some of the issues that you've, you've been looking at for a while. So um, this should be fun. So Heather is a, an associate principal at Arup um, and she leads its resilience discipline in the Americas. Um, she's an ecologist by training. We're gonna talk about that. She's been working for uh, 20 years in the sustainability realm, specifically with resilience for a while. Her practice focuses on a systemic approach to resilience for organizations with a very central focus on social justice, which she's also done a lot of uh, some leadership efforts on that we'll talk about. So um, with that brief introduction, Heather, can you just give us a little bit of a story of how you got involved in the work that you're doing now? What, what has been your path? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a that's a big question. It's been a a twisting journey, I have to say, and and some of the things I, I heard you you know talking about in in your introduction, I think, are really really resonated um, in terms of communities and in terms of you know needing to just look clearly at what's going on and figure out what to do. I started out uh, as you mentioned in ecology and environmental science and out in the field thinking about how to preserve natural systems. And really love that work, and and really it grounded me in systems thinking and and think what it means to be thinking simultaneously at different scales and zooming in and out and understanding relationships and how things fit together. And in doing that, I, I had a light bulb moment at one point that it doesn't matter so much if you graze this piece of land or mow it or do control burns and actually. Um, it matters a tremendous amount um, for all of our sakes to be thinking about that. But for me, where I felt like I could make the most difference was in thinking about the built environment and making sure that urban places were places people wanted to be and stay and could thrive and not just sprawl out. Those, those questions don't matter if somebody's going to come along. The, the question of how to manage wild spaces doesn't matter if somebody's going to come along and pave it. So you need to be thinking about land use. And uh, that was, you know, in the late 90s, early aughts. And I was, I, it was about the same time that LEAD was becoming more prominent. And uh, I loved the framing of sustainability and green building because it was so solution focused um, as opposed to more traditional environmental theory that had come before it, which was um, a lot of focus on the problems of the world. And so... I found that very empowering and this notion of the triple bottom line of environment and equity and economics fitting together was really compelling. And so I, I 
very happily joined the, the green building movement and, and was active in that space for a long time, went from buildings to actual communities and master planning and, and a lot of planning skill work, um, but still was struggling with, well, where do people fit? What about how green is your building if if it exploits its workers or if it's displacing a community and where do, where do we get to that in green building? And that was a struggle to make that connection there. Um, and I did some work with Joel Todd, um, who's an amazing thinker on this. And we, we really, um, I, I started to feel like the way to get the built, to connect the built environment and issues of equity was around disaster. Um, and I thought I would look at that for about six months and I got a, a research fellowship and started to look at those issues. And six years and seven years later, I'm, I'm still exactly where I'm at. I kind of became obsessed with disasters um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But understanding you know, how we're all connected and how disasters can bring out the worst, but also the best in people um, gave me some faith and gave me some points of connection so that's sort of how I landed where I where I am now. It's a, an interesting path to be, to think about how do we look squarely at these problems without getting consumed by depression and anxiety. I have to say, is part right. of the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you really, I think you really started thinking about disasters and resilience as they relate to disasters a lot you know, earlier than some of the rest of us in the movement um, who have maybe come to it a little bit later. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit how it has felt to face those issues, just resilience and disaster and, and really embrace, I mean, you just started to touch on it a little bit, but maybe a little bit more about that and about what that has meant, you know, how you've had to work through that. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting challenge to work in a field, you know, my whole career has I, you know, been focused on climate change and, and, and that awareness has come, you know, since I was a kid. And it's, it's the kind of field where you, you think about things and you learn about them and you know a lot about them and you fundamentally don't want to be right. So it's not like there's some validation and suddenly everyone's thinking about what you're thinking about. It's like, oh dear, uh, <laughs> this is, you know, when I look out my window, I'm in Los Angeles and there's fires nearby again today. We're keeping the windows shut because it's bad air quality. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a lot of heat waves. Of course, this is COVID time. Of course, we have organizing and and protests in the street and and all of these all of these different issues happening at the same time and if i step back and think about that from a climate prediction perspective these are all predictable patterns um and now people are just either experiencing them in new ways or paying attention to them in new ways none of this is news to people of color to black people who've been living um, with oppression for a long time. Um, none of these climate impacts are, are surprising to climate scientists, but, but feeling them and experiencing them in new ways, I think is bringing people to this word resilience. Uh, it is, I mean, it's good for business, but it's, it, it's very painful at the same time. And I think part of thinking about resilience and thinking about different scales, we think about organizations, we think about communities, we think about cities, and we need to think at the individual level as well. And how do we as practitioners maintain our own resilience? For me, a lot of that comes to connecting with other women and talking about these things and, and finding support. Absolutely. Yeah, Heather, I was so glad when you were talking before about 
you know, that question about where the people come in and, and you mentioned your work with Joel Todd too. I, I love that. Um, Joel's a friend and I, I followed her work for a long time and I think she's done a great job too of answer, of asking that question all along the way. What about the people? Um, and that, that leads me to another question about um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to go through a resilience process with a community, what that looks like. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. It's very complex. I will say, you know, just in terms of disclosure, most of my work is pre-disaster work. Um, so thinking ahead and understanding, I, I lead a, um, a team at Arab, or I'm part of a, a very complicated and amazing um, interdisciplinary team at Arup that includes hazard modelers and planners and economists and, and all sorts of folks thinking about these things from different angles. And, you know, we, we intervene in different times across the, you know, the emergency management world thinks in a particular cycle of preparedness um, before an event and then an event occurring, response, recovery, and you are constantly somewhere in that cycle. And the majority of my work actually is in preparing and, and using disasters and using climate change as a leverage point to bring attention to issues of community and issues of teams and what does it mean to manage complexity and uncertainty. Um, I have done a fair amount of work um, following fires and working with communities trying to get to long range uh, plans and recovery and get to this notion of bouncing forward. That is really the promise of resilience. It's that, you know, there'll be a disruption and then be up by planning ahead, you'll be able to bounce forward and, and come back better. Um, and that's really hard. And I think, you know, kind of the next dimension of this is understanding the role of trauma. And we've been developing a, a trauma informed framework. Um, an approach for doing post-disaster recovery work, particularly around fires in California, but it's, it's taught me a lot about how these things play out on our psyches. And it's very hard to make long-range decisions in that space. And so it, again, cycles back around to the beginning, um, to the preparedness of how do we help communities be the, their best selves all the time, um, it's not all about how do you find ways to build big um, seawalls and then hunker down with their guns and their supplies. It's, it's <laughs> the opposite, right? It's how do you survive, but how do you thrive? And you were talking about stressors and shocks. Um, you know, I think of things, stressors are, are the underlying things that make us vulnerable to those big headline grabbers. And that's part of this moment around COVID of seeing the stressors laid bare. Um, when everybody is stressed, who is more stressed because they already have additional burdens on their plates? And I think that has been very enlightening for people. So, you know, the experience with community is complex, but it is also potentially transformative where Resilience is not the same as disaster preparedness. It, that is one component, but it's really also, how do you empower strong teams? How do you build equity in the community? How do you make sure that the people who are impacted by the decisions that are being made are the people who are informing and driving those decisions, that they have a voice, that they are at the table from the beginning and build relationships and build trust? 
you don't need a disaster to do that and you don't need a disaster to benefit from that. But if you have a disaster and you've been building those strong connections and, and strong foundation of community, then you're in better shape. And I think this, so I'll just say the fundamental building block of resilience is communities and our number one tool, despite the fact that, you know, of all the technical work that's needed behind it, the number one tool is community organizing. Wonderful. That's very exciting to hear. Yeah, thank you. And I, I want to ask you a follow-up question on that because it, because I've been thinking about similar things and trying to get my head around how I do that for myself. So my question is, how, how have you found ways to do that in your life, Heather, at, at just as an individual, in terms of the ways that we build community? Or how do you suggest that people listening to the podcast know more from their personal life, life perspective approach that type of, you know, maybe change in lifestyle to think about um, building community resilience. I have like, I, I, I've been thinking about this all so much for myself. So I'm really curious to hear what you'll say about it. But um, it just, I don't know, it feels important. What yeah. advice do you have? <laughs> I would say, um, first of all, um, to own your own experience. I am a white woman, Jewish woman from Encino, Los Angeles, right? Um, that means a lot and has a lot of filters and I, and I have to know it and own it and also, and, and, and recognize the privilege that comes with that um, and recognize the power that comes with that, that there are places where I have a lot of psychological safety, where I have a lot of ability to speak my mind, where I have been given a lot of advantages. I shouldn't be feeling bad about that. I should be using them in the service of a just and sustainable society. And then connecting with humility and reciprocity, um, not how am I gonna go help and rescue these communities, but how do I build relationships and build trust um, in my own community and, and beyond? Um, and when I think about my own community, it's really, you know, my definition has expanded. I have many overlapping communities across Los Angeles and how do I build relationships with community groups who are doing really amazing work? That's a piece of it. I think therapy is good. Um, I think, and connecting really with, for me, a big piece of it is my girlfriends, right? Relying on my friends, you know, I, I have to say, um, as much as this is not, you know, maybe the, the technical or answer or whatever is I'm, I'm mostly off social media and have a text thread with, with a couple of, you know, groups of good friends, um, where if I need to share my thoughts or crowdsource something, I, I just do it with people who I know and love in a small group who I actually normally would see on a regular basis, but it's really important in COVID. You know, social media is a blessing and a curse. Um, we really need to be careful with that one. But I can't, I have to say that's not necessarily my expertise or my strong point of personal resilience. You know, I'm, I look at it in a theoretical and a, not in a theoretical and an applied way within communities, but then bringing it home, we need to be engaging and partnering even on projects with mental health experts and public health experts. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of something I was more familiar with starting out anyway in this subject uh, as it relates to diversity and inclusion in the workplace. It was something I worked on a lot maybe four or five years ago when I was building a company and the conversation about how you recruit a diverse team came down to the concept of expanding your definition of what your network is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it reminds me of that as we're talking about community resilience as well, that 
the work comes to some degree in thinking about what your network is, who, who those people are, you know, like who your friends are, who your real, you know, reliable supports and, you know, relationships are. And then you sort of think about how to build out from there until you have the network that you that, that you think you need <laughs> to be, you know, to, to be fully engaged uh, mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the different layers of community that you want to be engaged in in your life. Yep. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, but I, it's, I think it's, it's cool to hear you talking about the different scales of it. That makes a ton of sense, you know, that it's not just a question of saying like, all right, well, who lives in a six block radius of me and how am I going to have them over for coffee? <laughs> like, right. you know, it's, it's more complex than that. Um, it's a system of relationships exactly. too. Yeah. But, but yeah. let's not, let's not discount the importance of, of getting to know your neighbor. I mean, uh, knowing your neighbors is fundamental. We should know our neighbors. We should know the people within a six block radius. And from an emergency perspective, we should know who needs help, who can provide help, um, and investing locally and having a sense of place and a sense of local connection can be life-saving. So I don't want to discount that. That's 100% important. And also, who are the other people doing work in, in the spaces that, that we, can, we can support? So for example, so after I, I really started to focus on resilience and disasters, I ended up quitting my job and going out on my own and was out on my own for about six years. And a lot of that work was, well, who are the partners who are, who are doing really amazing stuff and how can I um, kind of embed and learn from them? So I, I had an opportunity for a while. We, I, we got some, some funding and I was working with a group called Scope in South LA that is a really amazing example of, of what I think resilience is about. They are located at the um, intersection of Florence and Normandy, which was the mm -hmm. um, focal point of the 1992 Rodney King, what's called riots, civil unrest, et cetera, uh, uprising. And out of that came this really clear sense from within the community um, with a bunch of thinkers there, like Anthony Thigpen and others, to think about, well, how do we build power within the community? And that's that's been the the lineage of this of this group and and many other groups really doing work in this space. And how do they come together and and organize not to speak on behalf of the community, but to enable community members to speak on their own? And we looked a lot at, well, how do you become a neighborhood resilience hub? And what does that mean? And does that mean you have a microgrid? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it means you're the ones who have power. And, and at Arup, we do a lot of work on that side of it, the physical side of what is a neighborhood resilience hub. But on the operational side, who are the partners who people trust in a community that is strained by police violence, in a community that is chronically disinvested, and where investment often goes along with gentrification? Uh, who are the voices who can speak to that community and how do we lend our technical support where we can in a way that is in service to the very clear missions and, and needs uh, as articulated by those communities. So that's a very different way of working around equity, I think, or approaching it than, than some organizations take where they say, well, we want to find projects and we want to go into these communities, um, you know, and, and we come in as the experts with the answers. And uh, it's really important for those of us who have 
you know, the technical training and the more traditional education and expertise to come in and say, we have these pieces um, and there are many kinds of expertise and how do we tap into local expertise? Everybody is an expert um, in their own community and how do we put our skills in that, in service to, to that local expertise? Oh, there's so much there that I wish we could get into more because, I, yeah, I mean, even um, I think Kara and I agree that this idea of a neighborhood resilience hub is super fascinating and we want to know more about what that actually looks like. Um, but I want to keep moving because we have all these other questions for you. And one of them is, is basically about 2020, I think. Um, I can only imagine everything you've been thinking about this year but uh, or working on this year, but in particular, can you tell us about any projects that you're working on in this moment that you think are interesting and you want listeners to know about? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. When, when COVID first started, you know, it was, well, what do we do about that? And became, we went very deep into the response. Um, and so our teams were working with different, you know, building owners around how do you keep your building safe? What is indoor air quality when, when we're talking about COVID and that um, was really interesting to see, well, this is actually who needs to be at the table for this. We need mechanical engineers, we need lighting, we need digital, um, actually taking these things on to think about UV lighting and digital communications of, of spaces and, and the sort of a whole new way of thinking about indoor environmental quality and indoor air quality and space management and, and you know, our modelers who can look at how people move through space um, and so that you could, you know, maintain social distancing and with different operational protocols and our ops team got involved. And those were really fascinating projects and they're, they're ongoing. At the same time, how do we think about what does this mean for populations that live in affordable housing and that, that maybe can't pay rent or that are already rent burdened, talking about stressors. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest stresses um, and stressors that, that a lot of people are living with in urban environments is rent burden. That there are, there are people, many people in Los Angeles paying you know, up to 90% or more of their income in rent. And if you can't pay your rent, then you have a really big problem too. So we've been doing some work with uh, enterprise community partners and NRDC and the city of Los Angeles and others looking at these issues around how do you fund retrofits to existing affordable housing uh, from the perspective of, you know, resilience. So seismic retrofits, weatherization, other things like that to keep people safe in their homes and keep their homes fit for purpose. So those are kind of two very different types of projects that I'm involved in in a pretty regular basis that are really informed by COVID. And not just by COVID. In, in, in California, you know, we're also dealing with fires. And so we have these very contradictory requirements for indoor air quality of, you know, bring in as much outside air as possible on the one hand um, to prevent germs and COVID and on the other to keep your windows tightly sealed and prevent outside air because it's toxic. So, mm -hmm. you know, th there's technical challenges of that. Um, how do you solve those technical challenges? The people who often have the resources for that are commercial property and, and others, and we work with those. And then how do you bring some of those solutions to communities um, or populations that don't necessarily have the opportunity to ask the questions, how do we bring 
for them, the question is, how do we bring the finances in to do this in a way to protect an, our existing building stock without triggering displacement? So it's sort of a whole ecosystem of projects that have come out of um, these discussions around COVID. And it's been great to be able to work at Arup at this time because it is, an, um, I should say, an employee-owned, mission-driven firm. It's committed to the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals. And so we can internally fund a lot of research and community engagement projects um, where we, we actually can go out and do some of these things pro bono. We can do the research that needs to be done and get to those answers. And so my biggest experience in terms of work and COVID is suddenly everyone's talking about resilience and suddenly everyone wants to collaborate in new ways. And so it's been really gratifying, I would say, and, and at times even thrilling as much as it's, you know, humbling and wish we were under different circumstances. Yeah, I can only imagine. But yeah, I know what you may mean. I think many of us are experiencing that at some scale. It's just much more pronounced for you. <laughs> All of a sudden, everyone cares about or believes you on things that they didn't believe you about before. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, actually, that's a good transition to one of our last questions for you, which is about the movement. Um, and, and by the movement, I generally mean the sustainable buildings movement, green buildings movement, however you wanna call it. 2020 has been, as you know, a milestone year that we've talked about for a long time in our community. And I'm wondering how you feel we are doing. What we have done better, what did we do well? What do we need to focus on now? Um, that's a good question. I think always, in the green building community, uh, the technical stuff comes first. It's not to say the technical answers are easy. They take a lot of work and a lot of thinking, um, but they're much easier. And, you know, I've worked most of my career in an engineering firm where I am very much not an engineer and often get the, you know, well, you do the soft stuff, the people stuff. And, you know, it always just makes me laugh. I don't even take that personally at all. You know, if people think that the people stuff is easy. It just tells me they haven't done it. You know, I think that that is always going to be the real question for the movement um, around green building and sustainability is buildings for whom, benefits for whom, over what period of time, and how can we keep expanding that, that question? How can we keep expanding if we like to think of that movement as a big tent with lots of disciplines and lots of interests and lots of stakeholders and such in there, we have to keep expanding the tent. And why should low-income communities, communities of color, others have any interest in that tent? That needs to start from a place of, of real humility and, uh, and listening and reciprocity and lifting up the work that's happening in those communities and understanding um, the real concerns. I think there's just so much work to do around if we're really serious about the triple bottom line, um, that that equity piece, we just have such a long way to go. And to me, that's where resilience is why I keep coming back to it, because it's just much easier to anchor a conversation about equity with building owners or whoever it is that we're talking to when we're talking about uncertainty and disruption and and making sure that we're doing we're having those conversations in a way that really are about equity i think i think that's really an important place to keep pushing and the way to do that is just keep reaching out to um, grassroots organizations and, and bringing them to the to the table or really in even more than that we have to show up at their tables 
Heather, that's a powerful way of putting that. And I couldn't agree more. I think there's such a great amount of work that needs to happen to do that kind of integration um, that you're talking about. But it's half of it is just keep talking about them as all one thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so we just have to keep having that conversation. Yeah. Um, we like to close by asking our guests who they are most inspired by. So, so if you could tell us who inspires you, we would love to hear that. And it could be in any realm, doesn't have to be in your field or a related one. The people who are really inspiring me right now are the people who are doing movement building, get out the vote efforts and leveraging the election to build grassroots power. So people like the Movement Voter Project, and others who are thinking very holistically that we need to get out the vote around this election. You were talking about this election. I think this election makes everybody want to throw up in different ways at different times. Um, and, uh, you know, how do we understand not just how do we turn out the vote, but how do you actually build the foundational movement to to make change and so many great groups i mentioned scope and there are many others sage and um, the los angeles alliance for a new economy and other groups that i really know more in la than elsewhere that are thinking holistically and bringing together labor and environment and economic issues and quality of life issues and building power in local communities um, and building networks of people because like i said again resilience the fundamental building block is communities the best tool is is community organizing and those community organizers out there doing great work and leveraging every opportunity that they get to to build community power those people are we have so much to learn from them and um, they inspire me every day. You're here. That's, a, that's yeah. wonderful, Heather. Thank you. Yeah. And that's a wonderful way to end too. Um, hopefully an inspiration for our, uh, all of us, for our listeners to go out there and find the community groups in, in your city or in your town that are already working on issues of resilience and justice and sit down at their tables and see how you can help. Uh, so with that, we're going to wrap up for today. Thanks again for joining us. That's it for this week. Uh, thanks to Acuity for hosting and to you all our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.